This is the Unseminary Podcast. Stuff you wish they taught in seminary. Welcome to the Unseminary Podcast. My name is Christine, and I am joined again by the founder of the Unseminary Podcast. Rich, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. You said again, like... Like you're waiting for someone else. Well, nobody else is going to host with me, so I think it's funny <laughs> that I say that every single time. Nice. But you are the so founder to be here. of Unseminary. Glad you're here. <laughs> nice. So I don't know a church leader who wouldn't click on this article these days. The article is called Increase Your Church's Volunteer Teams with the Proven Multi-Site Expansion Tactic. Um, you and Dan Ryland did some work together last year. Tell us about that. Yeah, so one of the things, so Dan Ryland, an executive pastor of all executive pastors, great leader at 12 Stone Church, he and I did a, a survey, a quick survey, a national survey of executive uh, pastors late last year, and there was a number of interesting findings. One of the findings that, that jumped out was uh, we asked people a number of different statements and asked them to basically agree or agree or disagree. It was a scale of five from like strongly agree to strongly disagree, and the statement that came up with the most disagreement was the statement, our church grew its active volunteer base in 2020. So 72%, 72.18 to be specific, percent of executive pastor survey disagreed or strongly disagreed with this statement. So, and this, it just intuitively backs or backs up what we intuitively know. Uh, in the last year, churches across the country have had a significant degradation of their volunteer core. This is a problem uh, that we're exploring in today's article. And I want to give you a, uh, some solutions, some help for it. Awesome. Well, so obviously lack of volunteer engagement is a challenge. Tell us more about that. How so? So there's a bunch of reasons why this is really bad for your church and really bad for my church. So primarily the, the biggest, the most significant issue is because it represents a decrease in our church's abilities to disciple people. So at its core, following Jesus is about having an other-centered life. And when we ask people to volunteer, what they're doing is actually practicing out what we're hoping they'll do in the rest of their lives, which is to orient their life around the service of others. And the fact that we have less people volunteering means we have less opportunities for us to actually disciple people, to help people, to help them practice what it means to serve other people. It also represents on the church growth side, obviously, you know what, on seminary, we talk a lot about church growth. It represents a significant challenge for for. Uh, church growth for many churches across the country. Over the years, we've seen that growing churches systematically encourage members to invite their friends to come to church. Over time, as we study this, we've seen that there's a strong correlation between uh, churches with a high, healthy number of volunteers and a high invitability factor in their church. The more people, frankly, that volunteer in your church, the more likely that those people are to invite the, your friends, their friends and family to church. So the fact that our churches have less people volunteering in them will uh, really hamper our church growth efforts in the future because it's less likely that people will invite their friends. We are experiencing fewer people engaging in our mission in this season. We all need a strategy to get people re-engaged so we'll continue to propel the mission of our churches forward. So what does volunteering have to do with multi-site then? Yeah, great question. So uh, when we look at the health of multi-site campuses, so one of the things, and this is going to sound braggadocious, I'm not trying to be braggadocious, I'm just trying to uh, to give you some context. So um, over the years, I've been involved in the direct, in the driver's seat of 13 launches. Uh, and over that time, we saw 1,500 new volunteers or 1,500 volunteers, two-thirds of them new, uh, join volunteer teams. Pre-COVID, the attendance of those campuses was just over uh, 9,000 people in attendance. Now, interestingly, looking at those 
campuses and as we've studied multi-site campuses over the years, we found that the key success factor for uh, the health of a campus is the size and health of its volunteer core. So actually the larger the volunteer core and the healthier that that volunteer core is, uh, the more likely that that campus is going to succeed. And that this is an issue for all of us. In fact, we built this into an entire system and we have a whole course on it called Launch a Healthy Multi-Site Church Campus. Uh, but it, it really is at its core, this idea that we need to attract more volunteers. So the, the thing for, I think for all of us, as we look at multi-site and at what we can learn from that in this current season is we all need to uh, radically increase the number of volunteers in our uh, churches and multi-site at its core was radically engaging a new set of volunteers. And so we're going to look at one tactic, one kind of core piece uh, of the system. That's a really critical piece of the, the puzzle uh, that we've seen real, just real great traction with over the years and seeing new volunteers get plugged in. All right. In the article, you write about five categories of the adoption curve. Tell us about those. Okay. So this wasn't invented by me. It's if you search online, just search the five categories, the adoption curve. And what this is, is it's the, uh, the standard deviation curve. You've seen that sometimes referred to as the bell curve and uh, lots of different things follow the bell curve. If you kind of categorize a group of people or, um, you know, a group of factors, they often follow a bell curve. And in this particular one, it's looking at the types of of kind of people, the kind of, uh, you know, the characteristics of people as it relates to their ability to adopt new things. And so we have been, even if your church is one of those rare churches that started back in services last April and May all the time, um, we all are experiencing a significant degradation in our volunteer core, which means we need to get people to adopt a new behavior, which is volunteering, even if they were volunteering before. They've been not volunteering for a while. They need to volunteer. So this adoption curve kind of breaks people up into five categories by percentages, and we talk about it in the article. Do you want me to go through them? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so the first one is innovators, and only 2.5% of people are innovators. These people are eager to try new ideas, products, and services. It's almost an obsession with them. Innovators are willing to try new things because they're new, even if they're painful. So this is an important distinction. They're willing to pay the price uh, of it being really super negative and not actually a great experience. They often are first in on anything that might be the nascent. Uh, they will often try to find a product that's in a beta form. Uh, just to be an innovator. They're the kind of person who, um, you know, even if you're aware of what, you know, the word beta means in product development, then you're definitely an innovator. So yeah, innovators, 2.5%, a small percentage of people. It's important here why, well, you'll see in a minute why these are important for us to understand. So innovators. Okay, so would you call yourself an innovator or would you be this next category, the early adopter? Oh, that's a good question. So I... I like to think of myself as an innovator, but I actually think I'm probably more of an early adopter. So innovators are the kind of people, so there are, there have been aspects in my life where I've been like, oh, that's definitely innovator. So I chose back when uh, iPhones were all the rage there in the late 20, <laughs> that, you know, to early 2000, 2006, 2007, 2008, I deliberately chose uh, Android because I was like, there's going to be two platforms Clearly, uh, Apple's going to be one. I think Android's going to be the other. Uh, and so I'd love to get to know that platform and did that for years. And it was a painful experience. There was lots <laughs> of things that were not great about it, kind of as it got, you know, as it got better. Uh, and so uh, there are a lot, the, it's kind of sexy to market that people are innovators, but actually the, the, the key distinction, this idea of willing to try things even when they're painful 
um, there's very few people that actually are in that category. Most people uh, are who think they're innovators are actually early adopters. And so out of humility, I think I'm actually early adopter, which is the next category, 13.5%. Uh, so as opposed to innovators who rely on their own internal values, early adopters rely a bit more on group norms and values. Early adopters, they do like to try new things, but they need to see that other uh, people are, are doing that new thing first. So this would be basically every person that's ever bought an iPhone would be an early adopter. Um, because you saw the lines of people uh, standing in line at an Apple store waiting for those to come in and that convinced you, oh, I need to have that. Other people have that. And so then you've convinced yourself, oh, I need to get up late in the middle of the night and order it and all that stuff and stuff. And so th that might be what we're seeing right now with Clubhouse, which is this audio uh, it's kind of this audio social network du jour. It's actually super fascinating. Um, it's In fact, it's really built right into the system. The way they're spreading it is through really encouraging early adopters to uh, pass on invites to other people. I actually have four available invites. If you would like an invite, please contact me, email me. I'll get you an invite for it, but they'll go quick. Um, so early adopters are often among the first people doing something that really the public is aware of. So uh, innovators typically are unknown. Uh, they're, they're, they're not real. They're usually the people who are the kind of unsung, uh, heroes in innovation because they're not, because there's such a minority, they're really not known by everybody. Early adopters is really the, the, the point where things start to become more broad. So early majority, these are individuals collect more information about products and services. They weigh the pros and cons to make the decision first in the church world. This is the largest majority of people in your attendance. So the vast majority of people who attend, and this is why this is important for us. And we'll come back to this in a minute. Uh, they are slow to adopt new innovations or to try something new until they collect enough information and relationships, I would contest, uh, that this something new is something that they would want to be a part of it. So that's 34%, which is incredible. So you think about that a third. Then late majority, this is again 34%. This group of individuals adopts new things mainly because their friends have and they feel the need to conform. Now, I might know a friend of mine who prided herself <laughs> on not having a cell phone well into the 2010s. Uh, and no, not that late. When did you get a cell phone? Probably 2010. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which is late. You've got to admit, that's yes. late in the smartphone world. Yep, Three years after the iPhone, she held on and was like, no, I don't want that. No, I don't want that. And why did you make that decision? Why did you go? Why did you ultimately say, yeah, I want to get an iPhone? Well, what? we moved Yes. And we needed one. I needed need to one. Connect with people. Need to connect with other people. Well, that's and it. Yeah. All that stuff. So uh, again, late majority, they are, they're often, uh, you know, critical. Uh, you are you saying I'm critical? No, no. They're, they're often <laughs> critical of new things. Uh, and until they see kind of the, the, the tides turn and then they will jump on board. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, I, the thing I love about late majority people, and I would say if I was a, if I could pick the category of people that I would want in my church as volunteers, it would be late majority people. Because my experience with these people has been, if you can convince them to join your team, they will stick and stay. Well, unlike the innovators who like will jump, jump, jump to new things, jump to new things, jump to new things. Even early adopters, we're like, we love trying new things all the time. We're late majority, early majority, and particularly late majority people uh, they will uh, jump on board, stay plugged in, and extend a period of time. Then finally, the last category, which we have less of these than we think we do in our churches, but I love the name, the laggards. So this is 16%. Now, interesting thing here, there are as many laggards as in the world as there are 
early innovators or, or, or early adopters and innovators combined. This is an important thing to understand. So this last group does not rely on group norms and values, just like the innovators. They're just like the innovators, but in a different way. They are like the kind of mirror of the innovators. They have such a strong internal drive towards nonconformity that they will drag their feet on any new uh, technology system and idea to come along. They don't mind the pain of non-adoption. Uh, they, they actually take pride in the fact that they don't, aren't going to do whatever the thing is. And so, uh, you know, there are, um, you know, more laggards in than innovators probably in your church. So that those are the five categories. So why is it important for us to understand these five okay, categories? Okay, so the, it's a good question. So why did we take so much time to explain those things? The, the, the problem is I would contest that most church leaders are more innovative or are they either innovators or early adopters. They enjoy new things. By definition, they see themselves as leaders. They want, they're willing to take the pain of doing something new. They see themselves as being first in when something new is going on. A difficulty arises because the majority of volunteers that are going, that you're going to meet at your church are either early majority or late majority groups. So if you just, and sociologically, it's just true. We will attract people like ourselves unless we think carefully about the kinds of people we're trying to attract. So the problem with that is, and we see this all the time with church planners or people who are engaged in, um, you know, launching new campuses, is they, they think like, oh, I just need to stand up and preach a good message or I need to do one thing. And the reason why they say that to, in order to get, become, get volunteers, the reason why they say that is because that's all they would need. But the reality of it is that early or that early majority and late majority people need more than that. We need to start building our systems uh, to take into account the mindset and the approach to the world of early majority and late majority people and, and kind of set aside our innovator, early adopter viewpoint, uh, we, we really need to s start with, okay, what do those people need? What do they want? How do we help them get connected? Uh, what does it look like for you? So if you're listening into this today and you're an innovator, early adopter, part of what we're going to explain, you're going to say, really, that seems like a lot of work. Well, that seems like so much effort, mm -hmm. but that is because you are not early majority or late majority people. You need to slow down and, and lead from thinking about from their perspective. What do your people need uh, in order to get them to plug in? That's good. All right. Um, in light of everything that you've learned, tell us about this multi-site expansion tactic that okay. can help. Okay. So we're going to, sorry to cut you off there. That was rude. I'm just super excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, uh, we're going to talk about something that we call uh, connection events. So connection events are a a way for us to get people to plugged into a new campus launch. And I think, frankly, every church, regardless of your opening phase, if you're struggling with volunteers, you should be looking at running connection events. And so these are not information meetings or interest meetings. I hate that word. No one wants to come to an information meeting. They don't. No one wakes up and says, you know what I'd like to do? I just need more information about what's going on at the church. That's just not true. No one says, you know what? Even interest meeting is even crazier to me. Why would you, if you're trying to recruit people, call something an interest meeting? You're trying to move people from not interested to interested. Don't call it an interest meeting. You should call it a not interested meeting. Uh, be, and, and then hopefully at the end of the meeting, they'll be, they'll be interested. So um, there's a lot we could talk about. Well, what we're doing here is um, really boiling down four kind of key aspects of a connection event. Now, the important or the connection events. Now, the important thing that, that uh, our good friend Seth Godin, he has kind of hammered on this over years that as communicators, as marketers, um, our 
orientation needs to be to kind of click a light in people's brains to get them to think, do people like us do things like this? So, uh, you know, people like us do things like this. So this idea of people need to say, oh, I am a part of a group that is going to do this kind of thing, uh, which we're going to pull apart here. Really, at the end of the day, it's about getting people to have deeper relationship. Connection events are primarily designed to be relational events in a church context that are focused on establishing ties between the people of our church. So this is not about getting a connection with us, with the leadership, with our information, with what we're thinking. It's actually about getting them connected with each other. If we think back to the adoption curve, the thing that moves people along the adoption curve is, are there other people who are doing this thing? And so what we've got to do is convince people, yes, there are other people doing this thing. What they're doing actually doesn't matter. It's more important that they see that other people are committed and interested in engaging in this season. All right. So you've got four things to think about when designing these connection events. Tell us about the first connection events have a high invitability factor. All right. So invitability is like my favorite word. Uh, and I know that invitability is not an English word, but I'm trying to get it entered into the English language. So invitability is this idea that in that that the events that we're running, these things we are doing are the kinds of things that not only would people put on their calendar, but would say, I'm looking forward to that. And I'm willing to invite my friends to come to that. I want to be a part of that gets back to my, you know, interest meeting, you know, information meeting thing. You know, people have, have an extended period of social distancing again in every market across the country. This is true. Um, that has led to reduced social engagement engagement. That's not surprising then that people are uh, not serving because it's primarily a social uh, thing. The reason why people serve is actually to get friends. We need them to do work, but they need, they want to do it because of friends. Our people have missed this and they are looking for more ways to socially engage with each other. This could be fun events focused on typically, uh, you know, activities in your region here, you know, in the Northeast here in Canada, uh, you know, when we did campus expansion, many times we, we'd start in the winter because we were trying to, you know, launch in the fall. And so we started doing these events early. We would do four or five of them. And so sometimes we would do skating parties where we'd like rent out a rink and then have hot chocolate and let people skate. And at the end, have a 10 minute talk about where we're going or, or, I, you know, there's a, a good uh, friends of mine. They they ran, which seemed crazy to me um, because I was like, really, that's interesting to me. But one of the things they, when they were launching, I was describing this and they said, oh, you know what we should do? We should rent out the bowling alley at the local university. It's like this hip. It feels like the 1960s. It's still stuck in the 1960s. And I was thinking like, okay, like, is that really interesting? I, I, I guess so. But they're like, no, this is the kind of thing everybody wishes they could go to that. Or they, they thought they might, they would love to go to that, but they haven't been there or they've kind of heard about it. And so sure enough, this church did this and they had like a couple hundred people show up to this thing. The important distinction is that they're a fun event that people would love to come to. So high invitability, fun event that people would love to come to. And there is a regional flavor to it. You want, so this, I can't just prescribe to you like, oh, this is the perfect invitability event. It's really you have to think creatively. What are the things in your community? Um, when we, when I was in, uh, Toronto and we were launching a campus downtown Toronto, it was really targeted at a lot of 20 somethings. We did this jazz night event in a loft and it was really cool, super fun night. Uh, you know, fun thing that wouldn't work in the suburbs or it wouldn't have as, you know, much, maybe as much traction in the suburbs. Uh, so you need to think about that. Connection events have high invitability factor. Okay. Secondly, connection events get people talking to each other. Okay. So the main outcome of a connection event, how do you know that a connection event is working? It's not that people know about what is happening or the volunteer opportunities. Actually, the main outcome is, did people talk to each other? Did they connect with each other? 
These events are designed to allow people to talk freely and to engage, engage with one another. They should not be involved sitting in rows and listening to us talk to them. So even just the physical way the event is set up, it should be set up, hey, people, you need to be engaging with each other. Subtle details are super important at this. This is ensuring stuff like ensuring name tags for people when they arrive. We know that those are social lubricants even more uh, so in this age where probably the, you'll have to have masks on uh, as people come into indoor events. So, you know, name tags are critically important. Um, you know, even the structure of the event years ago, we did an event that was a prayer event. It was the local team was like, Hey, we really would love to do a prayer event. I'm like, okay, that's cool. How do we make it more social? So what we did was you divide everybody up into two teams and have these 15 different stations and they rotated from station to station, but it, we had two uh, circles counterclockwise and clockwise. So every time they went to a different station, they had different people, kind of like a mixer. They had different people that they were praying with and getting to know. Um, and each of the events was designed to kind of uh, spark them to get to know people, even though they were praying. C connection events are more about getting people talking with each other than listening to what we have to say. All right. Third, connection events have a next step reveal. Okay, one of the biggest mistakes we make as church leaders is that we overwhelm people with way too much information. We know that volunteering our church in the coming years, in the coming year, well, probably coming years, is going to require a whole bunch of new information. We know that volunteering church looks different now than it did pre-pandemic. That is just true. Uh, there will be changes and new issues. Many people uh, ha who have only had an online connection to our churches up till now because of this last year. In fact, the idea of in-person activities at all will seem new. Uh, the mistake we can make when we get people together at these events is we fire hose people. Uh, we think that if we give them all the information they'll need, they'll jump on board. We think if we get up and preach a good 40-minute message, they'll say, yes, this just is not the case. So what we need to do is, again, the relational connection at these events is what is required most. What we want to do is give people a nugget of information, though, to kind of give them a bit of a next step reveal. Um, so there's this is important on a couple fronts. First of all, the goal of the connection events is that people would say, oh, I'd do that again. It's not even that they would volunteer. It's just like, oh, I'd come back to one of those in the future. That seems like a great thing. Again, we're going to do five or six of these things over multiple months to kind of warm people up for this ask to get plugged in uh, to volunteering. And so uh, connection events, what that, what at these reveals, what we're doing is just taking a little snippet of the information that they need to know about volunteering. So it's like, hey, we anticipate reopening uh, services on this date. We don't have any other information, but we're anticipating in September, we're going to reopen in person. And then maybe at the next one, we talk about, um, you know, what we anticipate in the kids ministry area and you cut it up. Now, this is important on two reasons. One, think back to our adoption curve. Those people that are more negative, that are, that are slower to adopt, if we give them everything about the launch, what we've done is just handed them ammunition for why they should not be involved. We've just... If, if you give them too much information, you're going to spread over it kind of like I'm doing in this podcast. You're going to spread over it so quickly that you're not going to be able to deal with any of it very you know succinctly. You're not going to be able to go deep on any of it. And that ultimately is going to give them an opportunity to kind of poke holes in it. So what we want to do is chunk it up into five or six different pieces and have just a small piece about that, ideally phrased around a reveal. So we could talk about kind of why people should come to this event. You could say like, oh, you should come to this next connection event, bowling. It's going to be amazing. Uh, and we're going to talk about our, you know, when we anticipate being back in in-person services come, you know, on this event. The other piece of it is if we slow down uh, and, and, 
and don't, not overwhelm people with information, uh, we can deal with that information in a more in a more holistic manner, which ultimately will help relieve people of the pressure who are again a little more resistant to change. Will relieve them of the pressure of like, do I need to make a decision now? No, you don't. We're just talking about this one piece of information. All right, and lastly, connection events have a simple call to action. Okay, so this, these last two are kind of related to each other. Each call, each connection event should lead people to a next logical step. We're only asking people to take a small step forward. I, I think this uh, is really a lesson for marketing that um, that you know we have to apply more, I think, in how we, we help people engage with our churches. What we're looking for them to do is to make a micro commitment. We're asking for a series of micro commitments, which literally the next micro commitment could be, yeah, I'm going to come back to the next connection event uh, and I'm going to bring a friend. That's literally the only thing we're asking people to do. Rather than saying, hey, I'm going to sign up for, you know, uh, to serve for the next five years of my life. Um, and so we want to be looking for what are those simple small text steps. It could be literally filling out an information card like, hey, I'd be willing to get more information about volunteering. That's probably not at the first event. That's probably a little bit farther along. Um, it could be, yeah, I'm willing to pray about the launch and I'm going to take this prayer challenge tool with me. I'm going to, you know, take that home and pray uh, about, you know, the, our, our volunteer needs. So again, think simple, small micro commitments, small steps at each of these events, not a massive thing. There's so much we could talk about there, but we'll leave it with that. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Rich. I know as a connection person, my church on our team, um, I've got some work to do. I, I think I'm going to share this article uh, with our team. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Yeah, so we've what we've done is we put together a this article as a PDF that you can if you just go to the bottom and click on the show notes or on the website, um, we'll email this to you. You could actually have it put in someone else's email address there; it'll get emailed to them <laughs> uh, as well uh, if you want to do that. Uh, as well as a one pager on connection event ideas. So here's kind of like a bunch. I've talked about a few of them here, but here's a few kind of it's just a kind of a check sheet of oh here's some different ideas to kind of get your your brain flowing. Uh, it's just to help you move things along. All right. Well, thank you, Rich. And thank you to our listeners. You can find this and other helpful articles at unseminary.com. 